Hello, and welcome to Filmy Matters, a podcast featuring a married couple of cinephiles who sit down and chat about some of their favorite films each week, and with each week covering a different category. This week, we're talking about two different Coen Brothers movies, with my selection being 2000's Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Coen, starring George Clooney, John Turturro, and Tim Blake Nelson. So this movie follows the misadventures of Ulysses Everett McGill, Pete Hogwallop, and Delmer O'Donnell, three men who have escaped from a prison chain gang in 1937 Mississippi. Pete and Delmer have been convinced by Everett that he buried a treasure from a bank heist on some property that he says he has to get back to right away before it gets flooded to make a lake. They narrowly avoid capture time and again, running into all sorts of harrowing scenarios that very narrowly get them all killed, and meeting a host of colorful characters, some of whom are based on historical figures, such as blues musician Tommy Johnson, no relation to Robert Johnson, and the gangster George Babyface Nelson, who might be bipolar? (laughs) Whatever it doesn't tell his compatriots is that the real reason he needed to break out of jail was because he was wanting to return to win back his ex-wife Penny before she marries someone else who has bona fides. I think it would be safe to say that we are both very fond of the Coen brothers' work and have watched a lot of their movies. Uh, One thing that I've noticed after watching several of their films, and which is extremely present in O Brother, is that they seem to favor an archetypal structure for their storytelling. So they draw upon large universal concepts and distill them into more relatable, every person sorts of characters. And most often they seem to utilize one of the most popular storytelling structures, the hero's journey. This is a storytelling structure centered around a protagonist who goes on a journey of some kind that involves various challenges, dangers, and difficulties, and then returns home changed in some way. In its simplest breakdown, it can be thought of as composing three acts, the departure, the initiation, and the return. We see it in the work of The Odyssey, which this film's story is based on quite distinctly. Now, I don't know about you, (laughs) or the audience, but much like the Coen brothers at the time, at least of making this film, I've never actually read The Odyssey, um, but I am somewhat familiar with its storyline. In fact, I believe I was first introduced to the story by Wishbone, (laughs) that Jack Russell, who would act out the storylines from classic works of literature, complete with costume changes. What about you? Have you ever read The Odyssey? I've read The Odyssey, and um, I have to say that it it's funny because uh, the Coen brothers have such an interesting style because they they tell stories, you know, and I'm not talking about, you know, that's how they make their films, telling stories. I mean, they, they lie, and it's funny because... I just have have to imagine that they're just some really cool guys. Uh, for instance, when they were interviewed uh, back in 2000 about Oh Brother, 
they had mentioned that they were vaguely familiar with the story, the Odyssey, uh, but just roundabout that they weren't really that savvy on it, that they just knew bits and pieces. There is absolutely no way that that's true, because if you have read the Odyssey, you see that this film is meticulously crafted around that story. So uh, that takes me back to kind of the beginning of Fargo, you know, where they say that it's a true story, and then you go through the whole film thinking that it is, and then you find out it's not, that the Coen brothers do really good I think at fibbing and such a way of making you believe it obviously they knew the Odyssey in and out completely and there are several different scenarios that they've done in the film where it's a direct relation to the actual story mm-hmm. and um, so for those who don't have a clue what the Odyssey is about it goes like this Odysseus, the mythical king of Ithaca, is fighting with the Greeks in the Trojan War. His side wins, but the gods curse him to have to travel for ten years before he can return home to his wife and son. Odysseus is prideful, arrogant, and also killed Poseidon's son Polyphemus, the Cyclops, so Poseidon has it in for Odysseus, to say the least. Along the way, he gets several of his men killed, or permanently lost, by way of traveling through Hades, encounters with storms, lotus eaters, sirens, cannibalistic island dwellers, and a witch named Circe, all while narrowly avoiding his own demise. Along the way, he still manages to find the time to indulge himself in sleeping with the nymph Calypso, who was quote-unquote holding him captive, and the witch Circe, because he just had to, really. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, his faithful wife is being pursued by 108 suitors, none of whom have any bona fides at all, and she has to come up with various plots to delay them for a freaking decade. (laughs) That must have been exhausting. Meanwhile, her husband is boinking and drinking his way across the Mediterranean. However, Odysseus finally makes it back to his wife, posing as a suitor, wins, quote-unquote, her hand back in marriage, and then slaughters all the suitors. He, his wife, and his son, then all live happily ever after. The end. (laughs) And so, like you were saying, it's pretty clear that um, through watching this film that the Coen brothers had to have more than just like a tertiary familiarity with the Odyssey's um, plot points because um, like starting with George Clooney uh, his character's name of Ulysses sounds an awful lot like Odysseus and he's accompanied by some hapless yet faithful companions Delmer and Pete who would seem to represent all of Odysseus's men Um the baptismal crowd uh, would represent the Lotus Eaters, and they almost caused Delmer and Pete to forget their mission, much like the Lotus Eaters in the Odyssey. The singing women in the river seem to be a combination of the Sirens and Circe, as they tempt the men from their singing, and then they also believe that they turn Pete into a toad, much like the Odysseus's men got turned into pigs. Um, and John Goodman's thieving Bible salesman character is a cyclops, as he has one eye covered by a patch. The unrelenting warden would be Poseidon, and Penny is Penelope. And I feel like for Clooney, 
Um, his Everett character's indulgences rather than with women are with his hair pomade. <laughs> so, <laughs> something he's often more concerned with than his safety or the safety of those around him. The Coens definitely made sure their Odysseus was just as vain and self-important as the source material. When you read the Odyssey, you're going to find out that, uh, you know, Odysseus, he is a horrible person. He goes through the whole story, and he's a lying, cheating, bona fide finagler. And you're going to figure out uh, that the Coen brothers really toned that down a lot because uh, what I like about Ulysses Everett's character is that uh, they turn him into a hick. And, you know, yeah. my first introduction to um, what a hick was, uh, growing up all the time, I would always hear the term hick derelict. You'd always say, well, he's a hick derelict or she's a hick derelict. Well, then whenever I read Hamlet in high school, I figured out what a hick actually was. Mm-hmm. And that's someone who's uneducated and stupid, but thinks they're highly intelligent. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely mm-hmm. the vibe that I got off of Ulysses. Um, whereas in the Odyssey, you see Odysseus, who's more pompous and, you know, he's just, you know, more of kind of the, the big and bad character. Whereas, you know, the Mississippi boy, they toned that down a lot in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where he's just to the point of being such a hick. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And you find out in the film that he was arrested and the reason why he was in jail was because he was practicing law without a degree mm-hmm. which tells you that he thought he was smart enough to be a lawyer yeah, without job. any education or training and, and george clooney does such a good job pulling that position off you know the the smile and you know those cunning eyes and that you can tell that he can portray that character well with uh, someone who thinks they can get by and they think they have everybody fooled but everyone can just see right through them Mm -hmm. very charismatic but kind of clueless yeah exactly (laughs) Uh, one thing that i thought was interesting um with the key song uh, in the film which was on uh, VH1's Top 20 Countdown which I religiously watched as a kid in that era of 2000 when this would have came out but Man of Constant Sorrow uh, everybody loved that song Uh, it was catchy it was on the billboards forever Uh, once again Coen Brothers and writers did a really clever job with that because the name Odysseus comes from the word odium which is Greek and odium means sorrow so when Odysseus's grandfather uh, who was a king actually named him uh, for whatever reason I don't know what the story was what he had against this grandchild but he was named Odysseus which technically means man of sorrow so that's a little gem that you get whenever you uh, watch the film that only if you enjoyed the book you would you wouldn't get that little nugget i did not know that that's really interesting um and um, i also loved how uh, penelope in the odyssey um, it's just penny mm-hmm. in, in the in the uh, film. 
Yeah, it's interesting, like, unlike the source character who's fending off the suitors, Penelope, Penny is actually, Penny's actually seeking them out, it seems like. Right. <laughs> one, yeah. one in particular. Which I thought was maybe kind of interesting because if you look at that 1930s era woman, mm-hmm. which was supposed to in some way be um, a little bit more, um, I don't really want to say liberating, but I guess for that time period it was. So I think maybe that was kind of a play on that the liberated 1930s woman it's okay for a woman to ask out a man it's okay for a woman to seek a man Um, maybe they just touched on that I don't know or maybe I'm looking too far into it but that was the impression that I got from that no I think a lot of women especially during that time had to be a little bit more self-sufficient and driven in order to survive and provide for themselves and their families because it would not have been an unusual circumstance at all for a woman to find herself without a man Uh, whether it be through death or through him hopping on a railway or going to prison or just up and leaving the family because he can't handle it anymore with you know the depression and not having a job and all those struggles and difficulties and especially with her being without a husband and a primary breadwinner uh i don't really fault her for trying to find somebody who could provide for her and her kids all those little girls what was there seven of them and that's one thing i like too there's one lonely boy you know and it's all about the male in the greek mythology and in the greek storytelling so you know um, of course the story was centered around um odysseus but then again it all is going to fall back on his son so you see the foreshadowing but then also the weight of the world is on that son's shoulders in the story to mold himself into this legend of his father Um, whereas in oh brother it's just a bunch of little girls and they're all you know cute and silly and so I thought they did a good job with that too mm-hmm. so getting back to like the music um, I think that the music serves as one of the primary characters of the film and that was definitely done on purpose um, so they worked with musician T-Bone Burnett and he worked with them while the script was still in process and the soundtrack was recorded before filming commenced. Hmm. And much of the music used in the film is period-specific folk music. And um, they also include quite a bit of religious music like Primitive Baptist and traditional African-American gospel. Most notably, the Fairfield Four, which are an acapella quartet that have a career extending back to 1921 and they actually appear in the soundtrack and in the film as the grave diggers towards the film's end hmm. when, the, when they're singing and getting ready to try to hang those, those three. I did not know that. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool fact. And I assume that it's like a quartet group that probably like changes members and stuff over the years. Yeah. They did not look like over 100 years old. Yeah. <laughs> oh. 
I thought that it was interesting too that um, with the music of the film, uh, it represented uh, it heavily represented the South. Uh, and but then also I think it heavily represented the time period of the Great Depression which they were in. So I think it made the perfect tone. Uh, everything from the you know the beginning uh, chain gang and then going through to the baptism and then uh, the sirens and then you know everything just played out perfectly through the film taking you on a journey it feels a lot more like a musical whenever you look at it if you just sit back and let this film be fluid and you know just take you down that down that river i think that's a good a good way to think about it and one of the songs that makes me think of the depression the most would be the Great Rock Candy Mountain song because mm-hmm. almost all the references and stuff in that movie, or I mean in that song, had to do with what like um, traveling folks on the rail cars and stuff, like the hobos and stuff would have wanted to look for. Right. Um, and there, there were like specific terms used I think with like bulldogs and stuff like that that would refer to the railway workers and guards and stuff that would be on the lookout for uh, car hoppers and stuff like that so oh god well I mean that's I could I could go down that rabbit hole and talk all night and, and people who get to know me well know that I have this thing um, about African American history and um, African American uh, folk uh, well excuse me I should say African American history and then also uh, African American spirituals as far as in, in way of music so we that's looking back to always trying to to see the positive side in life I think uh, whenever you're going back to the chain gang you know you're singing because you're thinking about what's going to be on the other side or what's better to come then it's going back to the Negro spirit then it's going back to you know singing across across the slave trade all of those different things and when you look at black history stories always come back to sometimes it would be the music that would get you through and so I think that that was relatable in this film as far as it being the Great Depression so everyone within that area of Mississippi was experience in that and maybe it was the music that was going to get you through this long hard journey which correlates right back to the greek in the odyssey so once again uh, very very mindful storytelling everything is connected yeah and speaking about like the african-american experience i thought that the film handled some of the more deeply troubling racial and social issues of the time pretty well too so it didn't I didn't think that it tried to sugarcoat or or whitewash anything so like if you notice almost all of the inmates that are working on the chain gang are black which wouldn't be very different from now (laughs) honestly Um, and the KKK are shown both 
as terrifyingly sinister while at the same time goofy as hell (laughs) because they are both (laughs) Um, I mean they're an absurd organization with idiotic and self-important rituals but their members are also capable of cold-blooded murder without conscience and they ruled most of the land south of the Mason-Dixon for much longer than should have been tolerated and they weren't just a bunch of country bumpkins, but they were often on the police force and in the courtroom and in political office, which the Coens depict um, the political part, at least. And I also really appreciated the fact that despite the time period that it was set in, they refrained from indulging in gratuitous usage of the N-word. <laughs> that always, that, you, you always appreciate that. Yeah. yeah, it bothers me. It, it bothers you a lot. A lot. Yeah. Um, let's let's just take one step back real quick because mm-hmm. um, I want to say that uh, in the also in the aspect of this film that was another hidden nugget that you don't really have to look that deeply for but the Ku Klux Klan is actually a character in and of itself Um, so I think that the Coen brothers kind of trick you into this because Big Dan the Bible salesman who I I love John Goodman's character in that film Um, he's so charismatic and you know very convincing awful but very entertaining exactly so you have big man the bible salesman uh who i don't ever think he comes right out and says it but you get the impression that he's a pastor or he had been maybe um or he's just a con man that can really seem like one what i get there there's actually a shepherd in um the odyssey and his name slips my mind but he's he's kind of a supporting character in that and so he shepherds his flock okay so i see that more as big dan the bible salesman now they try to throw you with the eye and the cyclops and all that well he's a part of the cyclops because he's a part of the kkk but the way that i interpret it is that the actual cyclops itself and the character in and of itself of the film is the Ku Klux Klan because um, Ku Klux Klan if you actually look at that uh, and go back to the root of that and the meeting go into the Latin it actually is a cyclone the three Ku Klux Klan uh, is a cyclone which uh, represents life never ending the three circles and so Obviously, um, the biggest, scariest thing in the story of the Odyssey is the Cyclops mm-hmm. that is coming and is tries to take over. And it could be a whole lot more dangerous than what it was if, uh, you know, Odysseus and his crew never stopped it. So, I mean, if you think about that for a while... Um, I think it was kind of interesting because when there is kind of the big climax towards the end with the Ku Klux Klan, you see all these people involved in that and some kind of surprise you because it's people that you see. To me, that in and of itself is its own character because it's kind of the whole film kind of builds you up to the actual villain of the film and it's kind of the, the man, you know. Just an observation. That's really interesting. Yeah, that... Huh. <laughs> yeah, so... 
Yeah, because it, it's real easy to read um, Big Dan as the Cyclops since he only has one eye. And I right. think I think visually that's who he's meant to represent. But what you say about like the actual character itself, that the, the KKK makes much more sense. Yeah, yeah they, see, the Coens trick you through this movie. I think <laughs> they really do. Because, you know... Um, you think you've got this from the very beginning, uh, you know, whenever you, you come across the, the blind seer mm-hmm. in the beginning on the railroad track. Well, then, you know, you get to the music station and then you have our friend who's in everything but we can't ever remember his name yeah. the voice of Bill Dotrieve and he's been in every other thing in Hollywood yeah. um, whatever that guy's name is uh, you know he's blind and so then you think to yourself you know oh you know do we have another blind seer well no in my opinion he represented Homer who is blind who tells the whole story and through music the soggy bottom boys you know to make their journey and then that's their um identity as imposters in that but it's told through homer uh who you know so you just see it's all um, i'm babbling but it all comes together very skillfully steven root i will not remember that <laughs> He has such like an average sounding name. Yeah. Um, I don't. I'll have to like look up how many IMDb credits he has later, but I'm sure it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but um. Yeah, that's that's something. Um, I think that you're right about with like the Coens, as being storytellers, because I noticed that in most if not all of their films that's what they're doing it's they're creating a story with average everyday characters that don't seem very extraordinary and then are creating something that's almost mythical in proportion like jesus and the apostles sure I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> what, what a, not a better way to get your point across than just using a bunch of average dudes. Right. You know? Yeah. And I thought that uh, another thing that I love about this movie is all the great one-liners. Oh, my favorite line in the whole film well, I'll be a son of a bitch. Delmar's been saved. I <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so this movie came out in 2000, and my family and I watched it, and ever after that, we would still quote certain things from the movie at each other, Mm -hmm. like, are you in an OFT, (laughs) or they're bona fide, Mm -hmm. or, you know... They turned him into a horny toad. <laughs> um, and I really loved um, this this time whenever Everett is talking about 
getting back together with his wife that he said that me and the old lady are going to pick up the pieces and retie the knot mixaphorically speaking (laughs) i just love that word mixaphorically and then one of the best lines i thought was he said those boys desecrated a burning cross (laughs) (laughs) it's just so silly the movie was uh, that's it's just really really good i mean you know i can't get over the fact of how it's and for a Cohen brothers you know it's one that you could break out and watch at the holidays with the whole family it's one that you could you know it's a really really neat film that's just my thing it's neat i would love to see more films take on things like this i'm sick of getting uh i'm sick of seeing everything being remade a hundred times over but if you can do something like that you can take a story that is you know eons and eons old and then completely gut it and remake it but then it's still the same but in a different time period but gets the same point across but it's different oh god i mean that's talent and you know i would i'd love to see something Beyond, you know, Freddy or Jason coming back 57 times. Yeah. And, um, like, they paid attention to the whole package of the movie. And so even stylistically, like with the coloring of the film, they wanted to make it look like the Dust Bowl, mm-hmm. like the Great Depression. So they filmed in like Mississippi and South Carolina in the middle of the summer. So everything was going to be intensely green as we're quite familiar with living in Arkansas. (laughs) Everything is very green in the middle of summer. So in order to get the color tone that they wanted, they to make it look like a sepia toned picture, they ended up having to use what's called a digital intermediate. And this was actually the first film to use a digital intermediate on the entirety of a first-run Hollywood film that otherwise had very few visual effects. And it took 11 weeks for those folks to desaturate and tone down the greens and make everything take on those dusty tones. Hmm. And this was in the year 2000. And it doesn't seem like it was that long ago but it was 20 years ago and so that's something that just seems so commonplace now to use digital editing to do things like that even minor things like that and that's just crazy to me that it took 11 weeks to get the look of that film well it's a gorgeous film not only the way that it's shot with the colors and cinematography but also the the costumes are really really uh, i think they're really specific and I think that the costumes tell the stories of the characters as well. I think that that's a really, really good uh, indication that you get a lot of that personality through that. Yeah, I liked, I just, I really loved this film and kind of like what you were talking about with it being, I don't know, you didn't use the word family friendly, but (laughs) it's one of those movies that you can just like take out and watch anytime. Mm -hmm. And because with a lot of the Coen Brothers movies, there is a certain kind of nihilism, I think, in some of their characters. And that's not really there in this movie. This movie feels a little bit more hopeful and positive. 
and nobody's getting tossed in a wood chipper. Right. So, <laughs> you know, the whole family can enjoy it. And I like, because um, the Coens do have kind of like this weird, off-the-wall kind of sense of humor. And something that I just noticed in the film was that there would be these random musical instruments that would show up. Right. And you had no idea where they came from. <laughs> or they would suddenly disappear and reappear. Um like Tommy Johnson has his guitar and then it disappears again and then another character is riding in the back of a car and all of a sudden he's got a banjo and you don't know where the banjo came from and it's just like it's just it's just Honestly, too, I don't I don't know if what your thoughts were but why did it strike me so funny how they downplayed so much uh, Tommy selling his soul to the devil. I mean, it was like no big deal. And I mean, they were talking about it, you know, like as if, you know, the the devil is someone that you run into at the grocery store every now and then. And that, I mean, but I just thought that was hilarious that that was just a part of the story that everybody talked about. But, you know, it was just kind of like no big deal. Yeah, I think that kind of says something about their characters and that, you know they're all kind of simple in their own way and they just kind of roll with the punches of life and nothing seems to really shake them that much you know um yeah that scene in the car whenever it's like right after delmer and pete get baptized and everett's driving and he's like oh well he's you know the the timing of this is quite you know extraordinary because delmer and pete just got themselves saved and you sold your soul to the devil and i guess that leaves me as the only one unaffiliated (laughs) (laughs) to paraphrase (laughs) i tell you that um the the comedy is just uh, I like how there's a lot of one-liners in there, mm-hmm. but then there's also some dry humor that you've got to look for uh, that's really, really funny. Yeah, and the the oft-repeated phrase from Everett is like, damn, we're in a tight spot. Yeah. Every time <laughs> their pots they get lynched. And it's always his fault, too. Oh, and yeah. Is that not one other thing that you notice, too? Is that oh, like yeah. Everything bad that happens in that movie is always his fault. Uh-huh. But yet he's got to be in charge, and he's got to yeah. be a leader, and he's got to, you know, he knows more than everybody. He, he's the smartest He's the smartest fool in the room, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I liked this movie. Um, what Shall we rate it? Sure. We'll wrap it up. Um, um. So, I don't want to, like, repeat myself all the time. So, I would say that I would probably give this movie a four and a half. Okay. Um, I love the structure of the movie i love the originality that it has the music is just wonderful you could listen to the soundtrack all by itself on repeat which growing up we listened to it quite often the songs everybody did oh yeah yeah and like we were not a family that was like comprised of country music fans but we loved the hell out of some Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. <laughs> and the, the yeah, just the, the whole film is just really wonderful. And it's really well made. It's well structured. It's well written. It's well acted. So yeah, all of it. Yeah. Very good. 
I give the film four stars. I think that uh, it's definitely one you can watch over and over again. You can enjoy it. I enjoyed it. I think that it's clever. It's funny. Uh, The music uh, by the soundtrack get you a little toe tapping music going. I think it's a it's an all around great experience. Mm -hmm. So I liked it. Next up on the docket, we've got 1984's Blood Simple. And this was both the Coen Brothers' first film as well as Frances McDormand's first film. And it's her first acting credit on IMDb. So what does the title Blood Simple mean? The film's title derives from... The Dashiell Hammett novel Red Harvest from 1929, in which the term blood simple describes the addled, fearful mindset of people after prolonged immersion in violent situations, which um, I can remember the first time that we watched this movie together. I think it may have been on VHS. And I remember at the beginning of the movie, there being a title card that explained what that term meant. Hmm. And on this DVD, there isn't, um, the one that we watched most recently. And in um, reading and researching, there are different uh, cuts of the film, depending on what format and what year you purchase. So, like, there are certain scenes that are kind of trimmed down or reconfigured, um just depending so I, yeah i thought that was it I, I was waiting for that title card and it never came yeah, I, don't, I don't remember the title card but maybe that's just me mm-hmm. and this film as well as their film no country for old men are frequently described as being neo-noir movies mm-hmm. and um so that led me to think about like what does a noir film entail what makes a film a noir and that's usually a genre of crime film or fiction that's characterized by cynicism fatalism and moral ambiguity and that kind of like nihilistic attitude that i was talking about earlier that you kind of see in some some of their movies and the the noir film was most popular in the 40s and 50s and they were usually crime dramas or psychological thrillers and a lot of the shared common themes and and plot devices in those kinds of movies were that they had really distinctive visual elements and the characters were often conflicted anti-heroes who found themselves trapped in difficult situations and having to make choices, usually out of desperation or out of nihilistic moral systems. Mm -hmm. And the characteristic visual elements of that genre included low-key lighting, striking use of light and shadow, and unusual camera placement. And that's something that... I noticed a lot in this movie. To me, it seems like it's a love letter to film noir. Right. And that, like, some of those classic elements, like, of dramatic light and shadow and eerie music and the nihilism and violence, the shady characters, the love affairs. Right. 
um, they're all here. And it's just interesting that rather than the more typical film noir setting of kind of like a Gotham-like city with men in trench coats and dark and rainy streets that, you know, this is set in the, the bright, dusty places of Texas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, you know, this was hard. I, I have to say that only, you know, really, really good filmmakers would be able to pull this off. Interestingly enough, this was their first film, uh, but only, um, you know, only real hot shots could do that because, I mean, you have to think about it. Um, as you briefly mentioned, we're talking this is uh, 30 to 40 years after noir you know was really popular and we're looking at this was uh, film was released in 1984 so this is right in the dawn of the you know horror genre the slasher films the you know that's what's hot and up and coming so I would think that it would be a big risk, not only financially, but also putting yourself out there on the line as being a filmmaker, trying to take something that's a concept that was hot 40 years ago and trying to say, look, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it better than what it was. I think that takes some real stones. Yeah, and in doing some of the research on this film, I thought... It was, it stood out to me that some people have described this movie as having some horror-like elements to it, Mm -hmm. which I had never considered before. No, I think, I think they're probably just considering the timing of that, um... You know, there's, uh, I think that's probably someone who does not, uh, you know, fancy themselves with a a true suspense thriller, um, which is what this exactly is, Um, you know, um, which I think, I think that the film is great. And this is by far my favorite Coen Brothers film. Now, with that being said, let me say this, (laughs) because I know film lovers um, across the country, if they heard that statement, their heads would explode let me let me tell you why because if we did not have blood simple we wouldn't have fargo we wouldn't have no country for old men we you know i don't even i think that there's certain elements even uh, to some of their films like Burn After Reading and um, their version of charles portis's true grit i think that a lot of blood simple you see in those works so i think that by them having guts enough to pull off blood simple and for someone to give them a chance to make that happen that gave them the chutzpah to be able to do these other pieces of work uh, with their independence so i think that all of those great i mean for for goodness sakes i mean you've got uh, fargo is on afi's top 100 films of all time uh you know so i mean but you know to get there you had to have blood simple and the the movie is just really really uh fantastic but i think once most people see this after they've already seen saw you know no country for old men and fargo and some of the other big films Mm -hmm. that the coen brothers had so it gets overshadowed 
Yeah, I'd never... It's one of those quieter, like, indie kind of movies, I guess. Right. You know, not everybody's seen it. Not everybody's heard of it, even, I think. Well, it was it was very low budget mm-hmm. and almost never happened. They uh, they only were able to, to make this film. They made the whole movie on a million and a half dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, half a million of that was what they raised to get it started. They took it to every major uh, film production company and nobody would pick it up mm-hmm. uh, for the reason being that the noir film period was dead and they didn't think that in 1984 anybody would care to to watch that and so um, the and one thing that I thought was interesting was that when they wrote the film uh, the only character that they actually had in mind when they wrote it was M. Emmett Walsh uh, they knew and they wrote his character with him in mind to playing it, mm-hmm. only hoping by a prayer that he would do it. Mm-hmm. But other than that, uh, everybody else was cast. Okay. So, um, they, but they did send the script to M. Emmett Walsh, and he agreed to do it. Um, so uh, he was in mind for that, which I think he did. A, he did just a really, really bang up job uh, he was perfect he was perfect, <laughs> perfect for a skeezy uh, I don't even know how to describe him yeah he's he is <laughs> skeezy grody <laughs> slimy total creep yeah um, only after, like only interested in himself and what he can get out of life like doesn't give a rat's ass about anybody else yeah. or what anybody else thinks. Yeah, total skis ball. And that's <laughs> and I mean, but the thing is, is that there's like there are no good people in this movie. Either. Are there ever in a Coen Brothers film? No. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we find ourselves talking about this after we watch every one of their movies, yeah. and that's one thing that I once again look. I'm telling you, Blood Simple is where it's at. That. It all started with this one film. All of their movies always come back to the same... I mean, I'm not going to say they have the same morals and they have the same element, but one thing that you see in common with all Coen Brothers films are a bad decision is made Mm -hmm. and there's consequences to that bad decision. Exactly. And it's, you know, how a person reacts to those consequences is going to be how bad the consequences escalate. In most instances, the characters can't see past themselves and things only get worse. But once again, that this is where it all started. Uh, I want to please tell me I'm not the only person who felt like that this film has some thing it's trying to tell us in relation to the story of Rasputin. Why is it every time I've watched this film, I'm highly, um, I'm highly hit with uh, Russian influence. Uh-huh. Which we see later in <laughs> some of their films, you know, burn after reading that. But uh-huh. uh, think about this for a minute. Uh, think of Julian 
and how you know he is obviously um so you have julian's character and he's obviously a um con artist skeezy um and he is whenever he's being assassinated he can't die and then think about also there's a couple different references made to russia in the film uh there's uh the talk about the amount of money that they make in russia and then they talk about everybody having to do their fair share i don't know why but it always seems to come back full circle to me that somehow this has to do with rasputin or russian history and influence beyond being coincidental oh and also (laughs) uh, think about it what was one of the things one of the instances that was leading up to Rasputin's uh, assassination uh, back uh, in the early part of the 1900s you have to think about it when he was uh, when he was in the pocket of the czar and the czar's family mm-hmm. uh, their son was suffering from hemophilia mm-hmm. and he was the one that was credited with keeping the son alive they believe because of the spirituality and because of his prayers and that with that well uh, I don't know maybe I'm just crazy and looking too simple into it but you know there's hemophilia we're talking about blood simple I mean, there's a lot of blood in the movie. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's an interesting angle to think about. Um, I know, like Rasputin, kind of worked his way up from being a lowly, barely un, barely educated peasant, but because of his charisma, which I don't understand, the draw of a man who's very hairy and smelly but but he had <laughs> he had his charms i guess yes. because the czar's wife was quite fond of him um apparently so were a lot of other women too yeah but yeah that's an interesting correlation of of him not dying when you think he's supposed to and coming back to life seemingly exactly and I mean, you know, there, there's there's several different things I could sit and talk about it all night. But you know, I'm just saying there were several. The, even the first time I saw that, I kept thinking, boy, there's a lot of Russian influence in this film. What are the, what are these Cohen brothers trying to tell us? Yeah, the the Russian references is interesting. Because, yeah, because, and then, like I said, you know, you see it later, Burn After Reading, you see it again in uh, Once Upon a Time and, not Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, (laughs) (laughs) you see it later in Hail Caesar, Um, you know, they've they've got something with these Russians, so, I don't know, I don't know, I want to quit talking about it now before we get assassinated tonight. (laughs) Um. Yeah, so... All the characters have are like to varying degrees somewhat sinister <laughs> in their own way. Um, Abby's tired of being married to the cruel and violent asshole Marty, so she has an affair. Marty wants his unfaithful wife and employee murdered. 
Uh, Ray just wants to get his two weeks pay and avoid the drama of sleeping with another man's wife. In yeah. Visser, the PI, um, he's only driven by what he can get um, out of life and doesn't care about who might get in his way. Um, so I will say that I got really frustrated <laughs> when Ray goes to Abby's apartment after he's taken care of Marty and they're both like talking around each other and nobody can just say anything directly to each other and I realize that that's like a plot point to the film and that's why certain things happen is because people don't communicate with each other and they misunderstand and they take things the wrong way but I just I just got really frustrated and of course noticing that once again much like whenever they had their first tryst at the hotel then later when abby's at ray's house and then here this apartment no curtains why does that bother you so much i don't know (laughs) the first time we watched it you said something and then now here it is 15 years later you bring that up again without curtains i'm a private person i think about just how vulnerable that makes you and open that makes you to to people being able to look in on what you're doing i can tell you story after story of people that do not care then or the people that i've even seen that don't have curtains on their you know blinds even yeah just you can see right into their dining room or to their living room and that and and they live like that it's people do that i guess it's just like the the true crime fanatic in me because i was thinking about like all the creepy people who could be looking in on me seeing what's in my house and you know well and if you wanted to really get technical with that there could be some kind of deeper meaning in that because you can see later in the film that comes back to bite all ray and abby too um so i think that um maybe they were trying to tell us something you know you get yourself some curtains or some mini blinds or you get a 22 bullet through your chest (laughs) yeah it comes back to bite him in the ass quite literally um yeah they're kind of like flagrant openness with their amoral behavior and it kind of comes back and gets them yeah 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 i kind of like how you, what you said too because um everybody in the film is horrible you know um and also uh because think about it in the beginning um if M. Emmett walsh's character would have just did what he was hired to do the story could have ended there mm-hmm. you know he was going to get paid regardless but that wasn't enough for him mm-hmm. you know and then um you know julian would have just went away and you know had his bar and and went on from there but you know that wasn't enough and then so in the end everybody loses but at the same time um you know i think that the whole thing could have been avoided in the beginning had there not been you know the affair so with you know with ray and abby so i mean you know you go through um would there have been an affair if julian was better to abby Mm -hmm. you know there's all these what ifs but everybody being so horrible they all just kind of play into each other's weaknesses 
or like the thing that seems to come across in a lot of true crime stories is instead of getting just a divorce people go through all these lengths to kill their significant other and try to hide the body or get rid of it and it never works Uh, but it's always been that way oh i know it's pitiful it's like just get a divorce that's expensive so it's hiring a hitman yeah then you gotta do and then if there's children involved there's custody and all that stuff it's just so much paperwork it's just a headache um okay and i feel like we also should talk about like how disturbing marty's burial scene is after it feels long and excruciating because he's just laying there gasping for breath and twitching while Ray is burying him alive. And I felt like I, I felt just as conflicted as Ray did, you know, in that moment, because, you know, this is a human being who is suffering, but at the same time, it's also a person who would kill you in a heartbeat. And I think that, like, when Marty tries to fire that empty gun at Ray, that was what helped push him toward finishing the job. You know, it helped him realize that if it came down to it, Marty would have him in that hole instead. Right. But it it made me think of, I think it's Goodfellas, whenever they take Joe Pesci out to the cornfield. Casino. Casino, okay. Casino, potato, potato, you know. We which? are getting that divorce here. Let's <laughs> say which. the film so easily. Let's <laughs> which movie is it that Joe Pesci gets brutally murdered in? <laughs> Just take a pick. But, <laughs> but it reminded me of that, in that it's yeah. like this kind of long, drawn out. I don't mean that in a negative way either. Oh, yeah, I understand. yeah, it's. And I'm telling you, it's Rasputin. That's yeah. Right. right back to that because, yeah. you know, he was poisoned. He was beaten, almost, you know, completely unrecognizable to death. Shot four times, mm-hmm. and then, you know, rumor had it was that he was, uh, his body was wrapped up you know in a tarp carpet whatever Mm -hmm. and then thrown into the icy waters and then drowned but then um you know history has it um which it could be a bunch of dirty filthy lies but then they say the last time he was seen he had floated down the water and was screaming for help and uh, holding on to you know a rock because the uh, ice water and tread was trying to take him away and he was screaming and drowning and that he had gotten out of the tarp and could not die i'm telling you so i mean that i think you thinking about that in your mind that makes you so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. just like the buried alive scene you know they did all this stuff to him and he's not dying and so you're having to sit there and you know you know it's eventually coming but um the thought just stays with you yeah it's it's a really uncomfortable part of the movie and you know it's done on purpose you know to make you feel as uncomfortable as the character who's trying to bury this guy um and there's so much foreshadowing with that incinerator yeah. You know, they there's a lot of playing up on that. Mm-hmm. I think to get your mind in motion that that's, you know, you're going somewhere with that. Yeah. Um 
And then it tricks you. Once again, those tricky Cohen brothers. Yeah, it's like a red herring, you know. You think he's going to end up throwing Marty in the incinerator. Right. Which would seem like a quick and simple thing to do, but he doesn't. He drives all the way out to the middle of that field. Yeah. It's just, ugh. Well, I mean, the film, the icing on the cake with the whole film is the last 30 minutes Mm -hmm. and the cat and mouse um style of uh the coming to get you and i don't know about you but i mean i was on the edge of my seat the whole time the first time that i saw this film um with watching um emmett walsh's character come after francis mcdormand Mm -hmm. and i just knew every single time he was gonna have her he was gonna get her this was it this was it and i mean that was tense i mean i don't care but i mean what whether you hated the character or not or you know thought he was you know whatever um my goodness the um some of those scenes towards the end you just have to sympathize with him and then you know you think it's all over then when the gun shots start coming through the the wall Mm -hmm. even more that's just the next thing you're like oh she's gonna die that's it this is where it's gonna end yeah oh my immediate thought would be like okay she's got him now she can run away yeah but she doesn't run away I guess it's because she wants to finish it, you know? Because I think if you let him live, then you'd constantly feel like you'd have to be on the run and looking over your shoulder. I don't know. See, I took that as my interpretation on that was that was just another way that the viewer was going to be just that less satisfied with those characters, you know? Um I'm sitting there and I'm seeing that and I'm thinking he's going to die eventually, you know, with everything that's happened to him, Mm -hmm. get out of there, run, you know, even call the police and lie, you know, you can lie your whole way through this. Um, and you know but get out of there and then but she doesn't she stays and then makes herself even more vulnerable i think that's another way for them to build up you just really disliking these characters mm-hmm. yeah i was i was convinced watching it that there was no way out for her in that bathroom yeah and so it had been so long since i'd watched it the first time that I could not remember how she got out of that pickle. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. She's flexible. Yeah. <laughs> Get from that one window to the other window. Good God. Um, oh, and, uh, and speaking of the PI, whenever uh, I remember when we were watching it and you f- he first shows up and he's he's been following ray and abby in his little volkswagen beetle yeah and we've watched the i mean we've watched the big lebowski numerous times and we'd watched it most recently just a few months ago and i was like oh i guess all pis drive volkswagen beetles (laughs) because the pi and the big lebowski drives a volkswagen beetle too and uh in in researching i found that that was actually done on purpose in the big lebowski they put the private investigator in a beetle to refer back to blood simple it was it was it was a reference to their first film so i thought that was pretty fun only the nerds like us would know that (laughs) it's the nerdy things well 
Oh, and uh, a fun fact: whenever you were you were talking about them trying to get the funding and stuff for the movie, uh-huh. um, so neither of them had any prior filmmaking experience whatsoever, but they had put together this little dummy theatrical trailer for the movie, uh-huh. and when they did that, it showed a man dragging a shovel alongside a car that was stopped in the middle of the road with his back towards another man he was going to kill and then a shot of backlit gun holes in a wall and that trailer featured bruce campbell playing the role of julian marty and um so i thought that was kind of a fun a fun fact that bruce campbell was in the trailer that the coen brothers put together to get funding for the movie yeah what was and um their why why do I feel like they were connected in some way to Eli Roth? Who's that? The Cohen brothers. Eli Roth has had something to do with boosting their career or getting them a chance. Um, there was a relationship there somehow. Um, I mean, Eli Roth. No, Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi. I wasn't saying Eli yeah, Roth. Yeah, was yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sam Raimi. Yeah, Sam sorry. Raimi. I'm, I'm, I'm going off. Yes, there's some kind of relationship there. So. I mean, that would. I mean, that would make sense for a connection because Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi were exactly. like buddies in college and stuff. Yeah. So. So that's where all that. Somehow I'm trying to remember, but Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. Um, had uh is somehow can was somehow connected to them Mm -hmm. prior to them ever getting a chance or a big break so um it's all in who you know yeah interesting well wrapping this thing up um yeah so um i would give this movie I would say I've, I don't want to like continue. I mean, this is the, the, the pitfall of picking, you know, right. your favorite movies. Right. Everything we've done so far has been ones that we've handpicked. Now, that we really love, yeah. Watching, you know, new things and just, just reviewing everything that we see, mm-hmm. uh, you all would really start to see what, you know, a uh, pessimistic asshole that I am about everything in life. Or uh, uh, me cynically poking holes in so many aspects of different movies yeah. and nitpicking. But oh God, if they don't have curtains or they don't have many blinds, I mean, getting uh, two stars or below. I mean, that right there's knocked them down to four and a half stars yeah. out of five. <laughs> <laughs> For me, this is nearly... I mean, this is essentially a, per- a perfect film. Like, because... For, especially with this being their first movie, it is so concisely put together. Mm-hmm. There's no extra fluff. Everything has a purpose. The whole movie has a purpose. Mm-hmm. There's a design in mind that's carried through all the way to the end. They know exactly the kind of genre they're trying to represent and harken back to. And, I mean, the film was just beautifully pieced together. So. All right. So are you saying you give it five stars? Because you never even said what your. Oh, well, I said I said four and a half stars. Oh, four and a half. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. 
What about you? Uh, it's a perfect film, in my opinion. Uh, everything you said, plus the fact of um, we're taking into account that, you know, who's to really even say these guys even really wanted to make this movie? How do we not know that they just needed to pull off something different so that they could get their foot in the door, make their first film. Because you got to remember, after this came Raising Arizona, Mm -hmm. which was a big hit, Mm -hmm. which, you know, things went up from there. So, I mean, how do we not know that they didn't just throw this thing together? No, I mean, I would say throw it together uh, very, very, very loosely. I mean, I'm talking about how do we not know that they didn't use their genius to just do this project and get it out of the way so they could get on to doing stuff that they actually wanted to do. I've just, uh, with all that being said, uh, outside of speculation, I just want to say that it was a perfect film. There's not one minute of lull in the movie to me. It takes you to places you don't want to go. It's taking you um, where you think you're going, and then you take a sharp left or right hand corner. Uh, the acting was really, really good in it, um, especially for uh, Francis McDormand's first performance. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, you know, also you have to think in the back of your mind, everybody was making peanuts, you know, as far as the salary on this movie, but they still gave it all that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just a few little humorous scenes in it. Um that didn't take away from anything else um but there was a whole lot of thrill um i'm telling you uh, and that's a whole lot of surprises too um so it was a perfect movie in my opinion so i give it five stars and then that five later um i think builds us up to our our fargo and no country for all men and all those others we we definitely have to have a follow-up uh, Cohen Brothers episode mm-hmm. later down the trough because this was a lot of um, it was so hard to just pick two yeah and I mean with with the representation as far as like theme and types of characters and stories you know we could probably pick one of their movies to go with another theme too doesn't have to necessarily be the Cohen Brothers um all right, We've so. Some good ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for the next episode, we thought that we would keep with the holiday spirit that we currently find ourselves in and each pick a holiday themed movie. Uh, and I'll tell you what we're going to do just because I've made up my mind. <laughs> I think what we're going to do. Um, for the next episode, which I don't even know what day it is. So it could be this week, could be next week. I don't know. What, just do like you always do and see you're going to have an episode just pop up one day. But um, I think we are going to do a compare and contrast uh-huh. to the 1947 film uh, The Bishop's Wife, starring Cary Grant and Loretta Young, and we're going to compare and contrast that to the 1996 The Preacher's Wife with Whitney Houston and Denzel Washington, both Christmas films, Um, and I think a good compare and contrast would be good. Okay. So, don't seem too thrilled. 
But I think that that's what we're going to do. Well, we will see y'all on, we will see y'all when we see you. Don't, like I said, don't look at me. I don't even, I can't even tell you what today is. I don't even know if it's day or night right now. I, I could be late for work, very late, so I don't know. It's the, the, the life of a mortician. Yeah. You never get to sleep. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, so that's the end of our show. That's it. That's all she wrote. That's all there is. Alright. I'm gonna have a brownie and a glass of wine and go to bed. That sounds like a plan. Alright. Good night. Good night. If you liked what you heard, then please rate, review, and subscribe. That kind of feedback really helps small podcasts like ours get noticed and heard by more people. If you're listening on Spotify, you can hit like and follow instead. If you want to send us a review by email or any other feedback, then feel free to email us at filmlymatters at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at filmlymatters and check out our website at filmlymatters.com where you can read more about us, listen to full episodes, and read our film critiques and reviews. Thank you!